If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. They take our present and push it to the past. And they take their present and push it into the future. And then they make inevitability of this futuristic vision. The last version of it was modernity. We've got to be modern, got to be modern. I said, what is primitive about my wearing a beautiful sari in the year 2020? It's timeless. There is nothing primitive about doing organic farming in the year 2020. It is futuristic because with industrial agriculture, we are watching a closure to the future. For the first episode of Green Dreamer's fall season of 2020, I could not be more honored to welcome Dr. Vandana Shiva here on the show with us. Vandana is a world-renowned environmental thinker and activist, a leader in the International Forum on Globalization and of the Slow Food Movement. As the director of Navdanya and of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology and Ecology, and also as a tireless crusader for farmers, peasants and women's rights, she is the author and editor of a score of influential books such as Making Peace with the Earth, Soil Not Oil, Globalization's New Wars, Seed Sovereignty, Food Security, Who Really Feeds the World, and her latest, which we're going to focus this discussion on, Oneness versus the 1%. So stay tuned as we're about to explore what philanthrocapitalism is all about and why the sorts of charity that the top 1% often engage in might not lead to a net benefit for our humanity and ecological well-being. How Bill Gates has shown by his actions that he might be on a quest for a new type of colonization here on Earth that really concerns us and that we're all a part of, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Green Dreamer. 
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I grew up in the forests of the Himalaya. My father was a forest conservator, and my mother became a refugee when Pakistan and India was split in 47. You know, she had studied. She was of the first in her community to do a higher degree. She was an inspectress of schools. But when she came back to India as a refugee and was saved only because my father was then in the British Army. It's a long story. Won't go into it. She said, I've broken all the glass ceilings for women and now I want to be myself. I want to be a farmer. So I grew up on her farm and in the forest. And that's where even through studies, I came back. And it's when I saw a favorite forest of mine chopped down when I went to trek in it before leaving for Canada to do my PhD. I wanted to carry this memory of my childhood with me. And the forest was gone and the stream in which we used to swim had become a trickle. And that's when I felt part of me had got amputated. And I took a pledge to dedicate myself to the earth, even though I was doing a PhD. But I came back every vacation and volunteered for this amazing movement of women from the villages of the Himalaya called Chipko, which means to hug, to embrace. And literally since the early 70s, this is what I've done. So Bill Gates, when most people hear his name, a lot of what comes to mind beyond his status as one of the richest people in the world is how much he's given through his philanthropic endeavors. And that's earned him, I, I would say, generally a positive reputation, and he's not too often the target of public criticism. But as we take a step back to really examine how he's impacted the world, how has he built his empire in a way that has not necessarily led to a net benefit to our humanity, and especially to the communities that he seems to be helping? So, you know, my world doesn't overlap Gates at all, except that in 84, I was thrown into looking at agriculture because it was the year the region where I had studied, I'd done my MSc honors in particle physics in Punjab University, and Punjab was a prosperous land. But 84, it was erupting in violence, and the Green Revolution had been applied to it. And that same year, 84, very Orwellian 1984, in the city of Bhopal, a pesticide plant leaked and killed thousands. I was then working for a program for the United Nations University on conflicts over resources. And I said, something's going on here, and I want to study it. And I did a book on the Green Revolution. It was the first book on the ecological and social impact of chemical farming, which is what it was called in India and the world. And I always say it was not green, it was not revolutionary. Now, this is 84. We had started to realize that this chemical farming was causing damage. And then in the late 90s, Gates picks it up to push it on, or maybe even the 2000s, to push it on Africa as AGRA, the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. And I remember being called for the World Social Forum in Africa where thousands of people said, we don't want this disaster. But he kept pushing it. And a lot of new reports have come out on this AGRA 
which will not build the Taj Mahal, but will ruin the land and the water and the farmers of Africa, like it did in water-abundant, prosperous Punjab. But the next time Bill Gates was 2015, when at the Paris summit on climate change, he was strutting around on the stage with heads of state and actually literally giving orders. And Zuckerberg were there. And everything in the newspapers was about what he said should be done. And I said, since when did elected representatives of countries elected by their people become serfs to the billionaires of our time? How did the billionaires become so rich and how did they become so politically powerful? And at one level, the oneness versus one, 1% book is about this. And I'm very grateful to my son who was a wizard in finding out the financial aspects of this mystery, because it is a mystery. And we wouldn't be able to write that book today because even when the references were being verified that this page does not exist anymore, this page does not exist anymore. So just think of it. Here's a man who patented a public program called BASIC and paid a tiny amount to the person who had worked on other programs and created the patent empire. World Trade Organization that I started working on when I heard about patenting of seed, the first ruling they gave in the Singapore ministerial was no tax on trade in information and software. This is how the billionaires got richer. And then you come to the philanthropy part. The book really, like I said, I started to write it in 2016. And it was published in India in 2018. It's being published now by Chelsea Green uh, in the United States. The sectors that I was watching, wherever there was an international law, and if it was being subverted, Bill Gates had his hand in it. Gene edited crops, issues of digital genomic patenting to subvert the Biodiversity Convention, the Plant Resources Seed Treaty of the FAO. And then you, if you start looking at the UN, after all, was the body that used to regulate big business. And states were supposed to regulate big business. That was what their work was. And now dismantling the role of the state in protecting people in the environment in order to actually subsidize the billionaires who don't really need more money, do they? But the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Framework Convention on Climate Change were the two treaties I have watched Bill Gates subvert. Mm. And I've seen him hijack UN institutions. We've seen, if anyone is a pandemic issue, the WHO is clear in its role. But just recently, Bill Gates took away the FAO's power to hold independent meetings and the Commission on Food and the Food Summit. And he's going to take it to New York, headed by the head of Agra, his fund project. So you want to know, how is it that he gets so much? And why would I? He's not my target. My conscience is my guide, that's all. And if I find untruth and if I find violation of the earth and people's rights, then my speech is my conscience. Sadly, as we analyze in the book, when he gives tiny bits of money, what he's effectively doing 
is taking all of our public assets and public resources in the commons and privatizing them. And then he's using tools he finances like gene editing, like gene drives, to then create new companies in which he has investments. So he finances the research, pushes the technology, deregulates the regulation, and gets returns. So there's a BNGO zero company where the head of his investment is now heading it. And they created a company called Editas to control all the patents on gene editing. So if I was doing a simple arithmetic and I have 100 rupees and I give away 10 a year, in 10 years, I'll be zero. But Bill Gates keeps getting richer every year. It's because his giving is investment. His philanthropy is creating an empire. That's why I call him a philanthro-imperialist. So what you're saying is that whenever he gives, he does so strategically to endeavors, projects, and markets that he might then be able to profit off of later on with his investments, patents, and new business ventures, and so on. Which means that, as you've said before, philanthropy for him may have been the guise for a greater agenda of the colonization of all life. Can you expand upon this? I totally agree with that. And that's why I've called him in many of my interviews, the new Columbus. You know, Columbus was setting sail for India. He didn't realize there was land in the middle. And then they say he discovered America. He just lost his way to India. That's why all the indigenous people of the Americas are called Indians. But basically, Columbus lands in another continent, declares it as his, and then property of the emperor and the... And then they collect, they, they own the gold, they turn the original native people, indigenous people, into the slaves of the gold and silver mines, in, uh, capture Africans and take them to uh, the Americas to work as slave labor, in sugarcane conditions, in the cotton plantations. All of this was creating new colonies by grabbing what belonged to others exactly the same pattern is being repeated. And people would think that he's not taking land anymore. People are mistaken if, he think, if they think he's not taking land. Because, you know, I've done many books on the industrial agriculture. Gates has gone in big into industrial agriculture. And we are doing a whole new report that will be out in a month on how everything, all the seeds of the world, all the research agencies of the world, he's controlling them now as ag one, one agriculture under his control. So exactly like the British Empire was one empire of cotton. How does he make his money? He collects, he privatizes the common good and turns it into patented intellectual property protected rent collection systems. He defines new territories. And the new territories including, include both the old territories of land because industrial agriculture in which he is invested in a very big way is basically a land grab operation. Just look at the statistics of how few farmers own land in America. I have a book, Who Really Feeds the World, in which I work through the creation of landlessness. But this landlessness continues with industrial agriculture. It continued with GMOs. Otherwise, why is the Amazon being invaded? And 
Now Gates is investing in digital agriculture, which when I wrote the book was only a Monsanto project. Monsanto had bought the Climate Corporation, the Soil Corporation, which now Bayer has bought, but everything Bayer is doing, Gates is financing. And his role is in the garb of philanthropy to arm twist governments and UN agencies to provide the policy support and the subsidies to make his agenda of monopoly work. So he is not just a new Columbus, but he's a new Columbus who wants to own us as his property. And more recently, I've come across a Microsoft patent. It's WO060606. It's about owning us, human beings, our minds, our brain functions, our body functions. And people need to think, just reflect, you know, in protecting us from the virus. What is being done? Yeah. And how could it be an instrument of mining our data, our, our data of our minds, the data of our body functions? You know, we are, at a, we are at a Columbus moment. What Columbus was to North America, the gates is to the world in terms of the future. And if you want to see what the future could be, let's just look at what happened to indigenous people. We are all indigenous to the earth. Now, most people know Bill Gates for his work in the software industry with Microsoft, but how else has his empire sort of been infiltrating our lives in other areas and making us more and more reliant on his platform and his creations? So you mentioned GMOs in agriculture that many people's food and fibers are becoming dependent on, or that is kind of expanding within the space of agriculture. There's the computer softwares and patented technologies that many are becoming reliant on. How else have we been paying rent, as you say, to Bill Gates's empire in other parts of our lives? Well, in you know, 2016, when I started writing the book, something very strange happened in India. Overnight at 8 p.m., our prime minister announced that cash, the you know, uh, 500 rupee notes and 1,000 rupee notes would be, the cash would be illegal. And a war was declared on cash. Three days later, Bill Gates arrives and gives the speech to our highest agency of government of how government has been brilliant in declaring war on cash, which is merely a medium of exchange between hardworking, honest people. The poor deal in cash. I sell 10 kilograms of vegetables, I have cash at the end of the day. And when I do something with that cash, that 200 rupees stays 200 rupees. But Gates designed digitalization of money and made cash illegal. That's why I call it digital dictatorship. Overnight, 90% of India's economy disappeared, the hard-earned money of the poor. Many wage workers who earn daily wages used to save their money to go home and then repair their hut or go home and send their child to school, all taken away. And exactly in the same pattern, 8 p.m., announced at midnight we have a lockdown. And someone, I think people are doing it. All you have to do is a collage of Gates' speeches from 2015 onwards, his TED talk. Of, he's the only one who knew a pandemic was coming. He was the only one in the shape of this particular virus. 
And he's the only one who, who was totally prepared of how the response to the virus and the lockdown would be designed. So our seeds, I'm, like I'm saying, all the seeds collected through the Green Revolution period. And I'm so grateful. I was inspired to save seeds because of Monsanto. 1987, the industry was there saying they're now going to own the seed. I said, no, you don't own the seed. You don't make the seed. You don't create the seed. The seed is creation. The seed is self-evolution. And so I defined it, defended the seed and, and created the movement of Dania. And fortunately, the discourse changed on the seed. But the failed discourse of Monsanto gets is given new life to this philanthropic image. In 2000, something called the golden rice was attempted to be introduced to India. I did a very quick study, <laughs> you know, all the good vitamin A products we have in our food. And I said, this is a blind approach to blindness prevention. We shut down gold rice in India, gets takes the weeds, and is pushing it on everyone. In the year 2011, a GMO brinjal aubergine was attempted to be introduced by Monsanto in India. And we had public hearings. I and my minister said, I'm going to listen to the public. And the public hearings led to a ban for this BT brinjal. What does Bill Gates do? He takes it to little Bangladesh, thinking that he'd be able to sneak it over the border, in any way contaminate India's food supply. But that's not all. When reports come from Philippines, farmers say, we don't want this or from Bangladeshi farmers, it's failing. He finances the Cornell Alliance Finance in Cornell, which is basically a propaganda system. I think he pays 12 million a year or something. And then he's picked up propagandists to fly to the countries. A peasant in Bangladesh doesn't have access to New York Times or to CNN, but the Mark Linuses that he funds do. So he controls the media. He controls what you think is happy world. He controls our seeds. He controls our food. He is controlling, like I said, our minds and our bodies. And he wants to control the cash. And this patent, 666, that I mentioned, actually at the end of it says, we will be reduced to users. Algorithms will take our data, process it on ready-made assessments, judge us, and allocate cryptocurrency, which no government will regulate. And they're going to judge how much we are worth. Do we want to live in a digital slave dictatorship where the digital dictators can decide who are throwaway people? This is a very significant moment. And I'm grateful that the book was delayed in the United States and is coming out now. Because now is the moment to understand. Mm. What is going on? I've been thinking about the news Daddy leaves it on all day through I've been thinking about the wars And to be honest I can't take it anymore I hear you every day awful words you say but hate can't be the face of the American dream
Maybe there's no way to know this, but do you think he consciously knows of his maligned agenda that will cause so much harm to people and our planet? Or do you think he genuinely thinks, maybe with great hubris, that this is the way to improve our world? And I do have a third option for you, which is, do you think he's secretly a robot trying to enslave us through a digitization of the world and the robotization of us? Well, uh, the third questions I can't answer <laughs> close enough to him to feel him. Is he flesh and blood or is he a robot? <laughs> but the way he's made his investments, I don't think those investments are guided the well by the well-being of people. His rhetoric is guided by improved world. But the improving the world rhetoric itself is a colonial rhetoric. If I was to read out to you the language that was used by Locke, when he was trying to enclose the commons and create private property, Locke basically said, indigenous people don't improve the land. They let the Wabizan roam free in the prairies. And we have to improve the land by putting animals at that point within enclaves and now in factory farms. So the idea of improvement is a colonial idea. The idea of freedom and coexistences, I know there is the other with their own autonomy. And my role is to respect their autonomy and give to them unconditionally because they too want to give to me. This is how nature works. This is how our societies have worked over millennia. So Gates has a rhetoric and because he owns the public relations machinery and now he owns government through the pandemic, he owns all governments. He has a good rhetoric. It's all for people. But behind it, he's calculating where can he make money. If as a young dropout of Harvard, the man was calculating how he can make money from other people's software. You can imagine how clever his brain is that. I do feel he has a lack of empathy. And he has a lack of compassion. I don't think those are feelings that he even knows exist. Otherwise, they would act as bricks in his building of his empire. In Oneness versus the 1%, you share three Gandhian principles that have really inspired you. I'd love to talk about two of them here. The first one is Swaraj, which means self-rule and freedom as autopoiesis. And the second one is Swadeshi, meaning self-reliance and creating localized economies. How necessary do you think these principles are for our collective well-being and sustainability? And how have the 1% been taking these things away from us? Meaning, no matter how much they give to charity, they're still ultimately driving our humanity down a path of dehumanization and ecological destruction. So, you know, self-rule and um, Swaraj and self-making and creativity and Swadeshi were concepts we were brought up in independent India. I was born five years after our freedom. And most people don't remember, but the empire of cotton was the British empire. And what Gandhi did was said, I will remember how to spin. And he taught himself how to spin. He found an old woman. And then he pulled out the spinning wheel, which had disappeared because British had totally destroyed our spinning. And we have records how they would cut the thumbs of the master spinners and weavers so they could not teach the next generation and spin fine cloth 
and weave the best Muslims of the world at that time. So Swadeshi then became basically a movement for freedom and independence. And self-making is more relevant than ever before, given how farmers are being destroyed, local textiles, I mean, first they destroyed handlooms and hand weaving, but now local textile industry. I mean, I go to Italy and it used to have the best textile industry all shut down. All their crafts shut, shut down. But now I was reading, you know, you have uh, the tax collectors, the toll collectors on highways. They've just been told, go home. It will be robotized. So think of the number of jobs that the big technology companies led by Bill Gates and his strategic thinking, how many jobs they created out of industrialization and now how many jobs they're going to get rid of with artificial intelligence and robotics. They've already planned this and they're using the crisis, the pandemic, to say you can't do this and you can't do this and, and otherwise how is it that Jeff Bezos, who is another person in that clan, has made 64 or 74 billion in this short period. 76 billion since March. And entire businesses have shut down. Entire livelihoods and jobs have been lost. So we are really talking of a whole, I mean, when they talk of the new economy, it's a forced economy. It's not a chosen economy. And I have learned my ideas of self-organization, both from our freedom movement and Gandhi's word of Swaraj. And that's why when I started to save seeds and become sovereign in our food through ecological agriculture, local food, I called seed sovereignty by its original name in India, Bij Swaraj. And I call food sovereignty Anna Swaraj. But Swaraj is not just the way society self-organize. The reason I was forced to do it in the contemporary period of globalization is like Gates is strategically thinking of what to shut down in order to have his monopoly. The Monsantos and the big ag and the big food were strategically thinking of what to shut down in order to have the monopoly. First thing they tried was make local seed saving illegal, which is why I rose, started Navdanya and started the Swaraj of seed. They started to make local food illegal, created sanitary and sanitary measures. Read a book in America on the Food Safety Modernization Act where a farmer, very famous farmer, is saying, everything I do is illegal. Everything good is illegal. Everything criminal is the only kind of law, and the law is made by the billionaires. But more importantly, because of my work on ecology, my work on seed, my work on agroecology, I have realized that nature is self-organized. So Swaraj in society and Swaraj in nature are the same principle of self-organization. And self-organization is freedom. Freedom of species, freedom of cultures, freedom of individuals, and through that, an ability to say no to every hierarchy. All those marches on the streets after the killing of Jack Floyd are really about Swaraj, but I would wish they would stretch themselves a little longer and say, yes, you're fighting against the old colonialism, 
And we did pull out a few statues of Columbus, but there's a new Columbus dictating every aspect of our life. And let us have true Swaraj and true self-determination and true justice and true equality. Politics in the United States go a long way in impacting people around the globe. And more and more everyday people here are recognizing that whether the political left wins or the political right wins, they've largely been acting as two branches of the same corporatist government, meaning that power has been taken away from everyday people with the current political system. So I wonder with the principles of Swaraj and Swadeshi, if this ultimately means that while we stay politically engaged, which is really important, we also should be thinking outside the box and building community-based reliance and decentralized power away from the political system itself. Well, you know, Israj and Sudeshi are really about community-based self-reliance and sustainability and justice all woven into one. Because when Gandhi started to talk all this language, you know, we were fighting for freedom. And Gandhi wrote a brilliant little book, which we teach in a course we offer it this year. It'll be, it'll be on Zoom. It'll be in November. I would request your listeners to visit the Navdanya website and see the courses at Earth University. The immediate courses on how to build self-reliance in food and farming. And we call it Return to Earth. And the next one in November will be on nonviolence and ahimsa for following Gandhi's footsteps. Uh, really everything about Swaraj and Swadeshi in our times, a contemporary understanding of what this means. I wrote a book in 1999 after the Seattle. We shut down the biggest, most powerful agency of the world. They, they used to say we'll be the constitution of the future. And people shut it down. And I wrote a book called Earth Democracy because we were being abused. You know, we were being called anti-globalizers and it's still in my cooked up biography from somewhere. I'm not anti-anything. I am me, yeah? mm. uh, rooted in myself, rooted in my conscience, rooted in my truth. And I am for localization. And if that means your agendas of greedy globalization come in the way, of course we will resist it. But after Seattle, I realized they kept saying, oh, these anti-globalizers know what they're against. They don't know what they're for. I said, didn't you listen to our slogan? Our earth is not for sale. Our world is not for sale. And that's why we will not let you privatize the seed and privatize the water and monopolize our food and destroy our agriculture. I wrote a democracy at that time, realizing that it didn't matter who won politically in representative democracy, because they both would fail in terms of a participatory democracy. So I talked about a living democracy as Swaraj, as participating in the affairs of your life. But it's Earth democracy also because we have suffered too long under the false assumptions of racism, of capitalist patriarchy, and anthropocentrism that other species are right. And they are unequal to us. They are less than us. But other species, we are just one among the Earth family. Therefore, Earth democracy is a democracy of all life. And our it's flowing from our defend our water, defend our soil, defend our seeds, defend our communities, defend our solidarities, and, of course, build our resiliences. So we'll have to shift from killing economies. Now they're becoming ecocidal and genocidal 
to living economies that nourish the earth and nourish people, from dead democracies where there is a ritual carried out. And in fact, one of our prime ministers during a World Economic Forum meeting in Delhi, in the middle of our election said, ignore the theater of democracy outside. Decisions will be made for reform that suits you, the billionaires. So they treated us to keep everyone busy. And my worry about the United States is if, you know, if the British divided India on religion through Hindu and Muslim and divided our beautiful land into Pakistan and then Pakistan in Bangladesh, this dismemberment and divide and rule is built into the rule of money without limits. And I am absolutely convinced when I watch the polarization that this is a new divide and rule for the rule of the billionaires. And people should really start seeing who made the money since March. Just look at the figures of Jeff Bezos. Look at the figures of Zuckerberg. Look at the figures of our generous Bill Gates who didn't get poorer. He got a 60 billion in during lockdown. So we really need to go into participatory democracy and living democracy. And that means taking more power and taking more responsibility and being more creative political process. Politics and, and democracy is not just putting a vote for bad choices. Democracy is about participation in protecting the earth, our communities and our future. Today, when people think about the idea of futuristic, often shown through Hollywood movie narratives or by the media, a lot of people think about, you know, artificial intelligence, more automation, more mechanization. And the sell is that people have to do less work, especially when so many people today are being literally worked to death in this economy right now. Maybe that vision of futuristic seems appealing or just cool to some people. But what is the caveat to that future, you think? So what do you think this would mean for the freedom that we care about, for our sovereignty over our health, our food, our resources, relationships, for the things that matter most to our sense of humanity and oneness, but are almost always left out of these dominant narratives on what societal and technological advancement should look like? Well, you know, having been born and grown up in India, I realize every colonizer engages in what I call chrono-colonization, yeah? They colonize our time. They take our present and push it to the past. And they take their present and push it into the future. And then they make inevitability of this futuristic vision. The last version of it was modernity. We've got to be modern, got to be modern. I said, what is primitive about my wearing a beautiful sari in the year 2020? It's timeless. There is nothing primitive about doing organic farming in the year 2020. It is futuristic because with industrial agriculture, we are watching a closure to the future. But coming to your particular question on artificial intelligence, we used to use the word artificial fertilizers for synthetic fertilizers the kind that blew up in Beirut and caused Beirut blast. And in Hitler's Germany, they used to say, we won't need land, we'll bread from air because now we got fertilizer. Instead, fertilizers destroyed the land and desertified the soil. Fertilizers created synthetic 
uh, it created nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more deadly as a greenhouse gas emission than carbon dioxide, and they've created dead zones. So artificial intelligence should be assessed with a view of what did everything artificial in the past do? Did artificial fertilizers help soil? No, they didn't. Did artificial foods or artificial ingredients, high fructose corn syrup and all, help us in our health? No, they've given us a of chronic diseases. Artificial intelligence, is it superior to human intelligence? No, it cannot be for two simple reasons. Artificial intelligence is downloading from our mind a few narrow analytic functions which could be turned into algorithms and put into a machine. It's called artificial intelligence is called machine learning. But our brain is a very complex system. But our brain is not just in the brain. Our brain is in the cut. It's called the second brain. Our food is making our brain. None of that can be downloaded into a machine, but how I do a certain calculation can. So mechanical thinking, which is a very small part of human thinking, synthesizing the synthesizing brain, the right brain, are the real direction that we get in how to think. And that's true intelligence. There's emotional intelligence. There's ecological intelligence. There's natural intelligence, there's cooperative intelligence, there's compassionate intelligence. Every human quality has an intelligence associated with it. And intelligence is derived from the Latin word interlegri, legri, to choose. To the extent that we can choose, we are intelligence. Downloading a small portion of our brain to then control us through algorithms is not intelligence, it is control. And for those who've designed, he, they say 99%. But in their game plan, we might be useless. But in the British game plan, we were useless. And Gandhi pulled out the spinning wheel. In Monsanto's game plan, we were useless. And I started to save seeds. In the game plan of the big tech and the gates, 99% will be useless. Now is the time to say, no, there's work for me in taking care of the soil. I'm going to repair my clothes. I will start fixing bicycles. There is limitless work to do in a renewable, cycle, circular, regenerative economy. That's, and for this, we don't need government permission and we don't need Gates money. We need a co-creation with the earth and co-creation in society. And my last question for you is, what is your vision of oneness? What would that look like? And how can we support this vision to come true, given that it is fundamentally at odds with the interests of those who currently hold the most power in shaping our future today? You know, my vision of oneness is, uh, is really uh, drawn from my experience with oneness, not just the experience with oneness throughout my life, but through my five decades of both activism and research in ecology. In my PhD thesis on quantum theory, I did my PhD on non-locality and non-separation. Quantum theory tells you mechanical physics is not right in saying things are separate, things are fixed, things can only affect each other by force, at a, by contact. Quantum theory says everything is related. It's not separable that everything has potential and that potential connects us and also creates pluralistic options for the future. 
And most importantly, there's action at a distance. And all of this creates new possibilities. The mechanical mind is what Gates is carrying beyond its rightful age. The ecological mind of non-separation is in physics, it's in biology, it's in ecology, and this is the philosophy of oneness. But it is in every faith of the world. Listen to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Read the ancient Vedic texts. Read the Bible. Read the Quran. They're talking about oneness. They're talking about oneness as one humanity on one beautiful earth. And this oneness to me has an amazing power. So Roundup has caused so much damage. But one week of eating organic food reduced Roundup in the body by 70%. One of my favorite images is how the oneness of the soil and the seed lying quietly has the power to go through the crack of concrete and break the concrete. That oneness of life is what my vision and my practice of oneness is. It's the power of life that will always stay more powerful than any short-term dictator, than any limitless greed. I watch and think, here's one more blip in evolution <laughs> and it'll pass. Well, we are coming to a close here. Green Dreamer, again, Dr. Shiva's most recent book is Oneness Versus the 1%, which you can now find at chelseagreen.com. And you can also stay updated on her work on Twitter at drvandanashiva and at navdanyainternational.org. Dr. Shiva, we are so grateful for your leadership and all that you do. It's been, an, it's been a huge honor to have you here with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? To dream is wise. And what gives me hope? The seed gives me hope. You know, I had seeds which I collected 40 years. They'd been sitting in a grain bin and they burst into life. And one seed can give us a thousand seeds if they are mustard or they're radish or a million seeds, a million in terms of 100,000 in the Latin word of the millets, which is why the millets are called millets because of this million. That abundance, that multiplicity, that renewability, that power in that little, little seed, that is the power that we have to live and experience daily to have hope and resilience. This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, we would love to have your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support so we can keep this show going and accessible to the public. Today's song feature is American Dream by Ray Zaragoza, whose work you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking time to tune in and learn with us. And I will catch you soon in the next episode. And I've been thinking about our mother And how they took her away from her people Put her in a boarding school Away from her brother, sister, and culture I can hear her every night Saying we've gotta make this right 
a choice and it can start with me And change is a choice and it can start with me